Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett and today's guest is Jason Buster-Jones. Jason is an Associate Professor at, of Music in the Global Arts Studies Program at the University of California. He received his BA in Music and Anthropology from Whitman College and his MA and PhD in Anthropology from the University of Chicago. Jason is an ethnomusicologist whose work focuses on the music industry in India. He has written two books, co-edited the, the volume Music in Contemporary Indian Film, published in the journals Ethnomusicology, Popular Music, and South Asian Popular Culture, as well as book chapters in several edited volumes. Hi Jason, and welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. And so you're here in St. John's currently, and what are you, what are you doing here in St. John's, I guess? So I'm here as... Uh what am I doing here? Um, I'm here as as the the scholar in residence at Memorial University. Um, so I'm uh, here uh, giving a public lecture on my work on um, on Indian film music, um, both uh, yesterday and today, uh, as well as teaching a couple of graduate seminars uh, about some of the things related to my work. And so, uh, I guess, how did you get started in your work? What what brought, drew you to that research interest? So, um, I'm a jazz saxophone player, and as an as an undergraduate, I was really fascinated by the ways that people think about improvisation, musical improvisation, and um, how there is a relationship between the way that we improvise in language and the way that we improvise in music. So um, I, as I was completing deg a degree in music and anthropology and thinking of the interconnections between them, um, I had this opportunity to, to take a year-long Vandriyars or uh, a, year, a year abroad, which I spent in India studying Indian classical music. Uh, the idea there was to learn how Indian classical pedagogy worked and to see the ways in which it was similar to jazz and the ways that it was different from jazz. So I spent about a year studying tabla in, in the city of um, Varanasi and um, got a better sense of, of how exactly Indian classical musicians begin to think through music. Uh, from that moment, uh, I knew I was going to graduate school. I was sort of on, on that track. So. Um, I found myself at the University of Chicago, starting with the same kinds of questions um, in the anthropology department there, and thinking about how people uh, think through music and how um, musical, again, musical improvisation has uh, really strong correlations to the way that people use language. However, when I went to India um, on a language program a couple of years later, I came to realize that the um, that there were other issues in India in Indian music that hadn't really been touched by that point. So um, one of the things that I noticed, for example, is that there were a lot of um, pretty dramatic changes that came along with Indians' liberalization of their economy. That is, just moving, uh, taking down trade barriers and and um, allowing more. Uh, foreign investment and things along that line. And I was beginning to see uh, some fairly large changes in how people were selling music um, and how, how pe people were thinking about music within the culture of that time. So I, when I returned to India to do my field work, I, I spent most of my time in that two-year period um, in music stores and thinking about how the, the way that music circulates as a commodity, how it gets bought and it gets sold, what sorts of narratives accompany music as it's moving, as it's moving from, um, from the music store to the home or, or as it's being marketed, as it's being pre presented on television or on radio and things like that. And 
from that, then um, a, a, my dissertation emerged, focusing primarily on music as a commodity, at the, and, and then thinking more explicitly about musical values and the, and the ways that values are not only the, the, the sort of economic values that come along with music, but the but the the other kinds of social values that people incorporate in in music circulation. When you when you loan an album to someone, for example, you're giving a part of yourself. A, 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 Along with that, there's there's some there's something in, invested in it. You have some sort of emotional investment in it. Um, so in in that context, then I started thinking about um, things like music piracy, for example, um, or um, these big stores that were modeled on Tower Records or Virgin on the Virgin Mega Store, and how these were creating a whole set of brand identities around music and what mu and what music could do. In large part, what what these retailers had to do was convince consumers not to buy on the street, not to buy pirated music, um, but instead to spend, uh, pay them the, the regular amount or the, the the posted amount of music and provide some added value for them to do that. Um, ultimately, um, by the time I had finished my dissertation, almost all these stores had disappeared, um, and it wasn't just the it wasn't just the big corporate retail stores that disappeared, but all the smaller shops disappeared as well. So today, in in um, in the city of um, Mumbai. There are almost no no record stores anywhere. They're completely gone. Um, one of the things that ended up happening in that context is that the mobile phone, um, as a way of listening to music and by way of streaming and as by way of uh, again sort of illegal downloads, came to replace uh, other modes of of listening to music. And so as a result of that, then the uh, the values that are around music shifted away from thing from like a physical object that moves from person to person to being something that people have more or less. Um, uh, embedded in a hard drive or on or on a chip, so the, thinking through that transition from the early uh, the early period of recording, it really from from vinyl onward to the mobile phone, um, was the was the uh, the subject of my second book actually. Um, all, some of this came out of out of the work that I had done for my dissertation, and then had been um, significantly updated, which was important considering most of the places that I was looking at in the mid two thousands were simply gone. Um, the other kind of work that I do is based um, around um, thinking about music and um, and music in the way that musical ideas move between different sorts of contexts. So, uh, as I mentioned, my my initial focus on uh, music and improvisation had had changed not just because I was interested in music as a commodity that circulates, but also begin th to begin to think about music um, as it's as it's mediated by uh, by say videos or by um, by dance or other sorts of things. So um, in the early 2000s, virtually no one had written anything on um, on the music of Bollywood. That in Bollywood film songs are the most most popular music in India. About 70, 60 to seventy percent of, of album sales or song sales are specifically of Bollywood, and yet no one had really written about that, um, which is a bit shocking that it went along. Um, it went that long. What I ended up doing then is is um, uh, the first a project that emerged out of my teaching um, my in my first job at Texas A&M University. I was sort of thrust into a class teaching Bollywood films and Bollywood film songs, and out of that then spurred a, a larger um, realization that that someone needed to be writing about this. That the market really needed needed um, someone to to talk about film songs beyond this sort of um, hagiographic or hagiographic uh, accounts of particular uh, artists, and begin thinking about what the production processes are, what kinds of values are in place as as films are being recorded, um, what kinds of meanings do songs have have, and what what do they carry along with them from the 
film and then into people's lives and, and, and into their memories. So that became actually my first book, Bollywood Sounds, um, that uh, it, uh, where in which I explored a lot a lot of these sorts of issues in addition to thinking about the the larger implications of a song um, consistently being part of some sort of mass media um, context and always being mediated by video in one way or another. Um, with a larger eye again towards some of the major transformations that took place in the industry after um, after India liberalized its economy, and um, the films themselves became tangibly different in their um, in their focus, the sorts of things that they covered, the kinds of songs that they were providing, um, um, that were being composed for, and um, the, even really the production values of the songs as well. So in essence, this 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 first book became the. Um, became a, a larger 70-year history of, of Indian film song, looking at, at it from a variety of different perspectives and different sorts of so, social and historical contexts. My, my second book then became the study of music stores and um, thinking about values more generally. Um, and then a lot of my other writing is, is based somewhere in this in the space between thinking about music as a commodity, but also thinking mu about music as, as a, mediated, um, a mediated object that, um, that moves, moves through space and time and place. And you mentioned how, how, I guess, music has changed over time mm -hmm. in the way people consume it. And did you touch on that at all as to how people consume, like, Bollywood films? Um, within, the, um, within the context of, the, of, the, of my first book, um, not so much. Um, I, I did talk about some of the moral panics that people had, particularly the, the Indian government had, about um, Bollywood being a, a potentially negative influence on Indian society. And there's a period of time in the 1950s, for example, that film songs were basically banned from the radio because it was uh, India's founding, uh, founding parents felt that uh, film songs led to the wrong sets of values for the new Indian nation, the Indian government and the Indian nation state. They were trying to focus on the uh, the things that brought Indians together, the the, the shared cultural traditions, the, the shared um, um, heterogeneous uh, ideas about um, about the nature of Indian secularism and so forth. Um, whereas film songs, for a lot of people, felt like something that was was still part of the colonial era, that something was still a little bit British, a little bit too British. In part, um, they had a bit of a point because the, the jazz and Latin music and other sorts of things were being heavily used within within film songs of that period of time and really you have to think about film songs as being as being a, a quite a hybrid musical form that emerged out of the 1940s and so the Indian government was was trying to find a way to, to force people into listening to folk musics or classical music or things that they per perceived as being uh, authentically Indian um, in the end they failed uh, in part because uh, a radio station in Sri Lanka was basically broadcasting the film songs that people wanted to hear across the entire Indian subcontinent, and um, people would tune into that rather than the, than the, the local terrestrial stations. Um, but also because the attitudes about film song changed. These days people tend to think about film song um, as being part of their cultural heritage in ways that um, they used to think about uh, classical music or folk music as being part of a cultural heritage. This isn't to say that there aren't people who, really, who are really frustrated by this, by this change, um, in part because there's, uh, film songs have always been sort of a part of a commercial industry. Um, nevertheless, um, if you ask an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old what, what, music, what music is the music of your heritage, they'll more, like, more likely than not they'll say film songs, they'll say Bollywood or things along that line. Um, and so it becomes an important thing to examine um, very, very carefully um, in order to get a sense of, of all of the sort of his, the histories and changes and the, and the struggles that, that took place in, in establishing this as a, as a genre. 
I believe while you're here, you're going to uh, give a bit of a presentation on Bollywood music, and I think there's also supposed to be a, a dance as well. That's my understanding. Yeah, the the um, I'm what I'm presenting on today or tonight is uh, an argument that I've been de I developed for the Bollywood Sounds book. This idea that um, there's there always have been consistent elements of Bollywood film song that. Uh, that have continued from the 1940s into the present day. So one of them, it, one of these ideas is the, the idea of the playback singer. That is a professional singer who plays or who, who, who uh, records the songs in the studios before it's played back and, and lip synced uh, for the actors, for the actress to, um, to dance with and so forth. Um, so uh, the playback singing, which, which emerged in the 1940s as a way really of making sure that the voices could stay relatively pretty, even if, as you have uh, relatively pretty people on, on, um, in front of the camera as well, enabled the separation of the, of the sound of the, the singing voice and, 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 the, and the dancing or the otherwise the, the, uh, the body on, on the screen. Um, this practice largely continues today. Um, almost all songs are still uh, a component of playback, uh, have a component of playback singing to, to them. Um, although the relationship of playback singers to say broader popular culture is much, much closer than it, than it used to be. That is to say that um, playback singers are now, um, are now people that you see on stage who have a, have a very definite kind of performative style, a certain a certain mode of performance um, that didn't exist with some of the more, the older, more class, classically oriented singers. Um, in addition to that, um, there's a one, an, another component of this, the broader, large-scale uh, history of Indian film song is this idea that I call mediation. The sense that, that film song composers are consistently, um, are first, are cosmopolitan listeners themselves and cosmopolitan composers. They're aware of all the music that's happening within India and around them. And in essence, they've taken bits and pieces of different musical, um, musical traditions and, and brought them all together into something that's very, very distinct as as film song. The sound of film song from the 1940s to the 2010s is very, very different, but the processes that the, that the music producers and the music directors use to, uh, to create those sounds is the same. They see what's available and, and make educated guesses on what the audi what audience was going to want to hear, which means then that in the 1940s you're hearing, like as I said before, jazz, big band jazz and other kinds of music being, um, being integrated into film song. Um, in the 2010s you're hearing EDM or heavy metal or other musical genres in addition to local um, in addition to local musics like Pangra or Ras or uh, um, or other other kinds of, of folk songs that have been stylized in a particular way to to um, create a new new kinds of sounds so you might hear someone um, singing a Bhangra song um, or, or in something that's inspired by Bhangra but it also has a, a dance beat below it um, um, which is a very a fairly popular thing to do right now but it would be it's difficult to say that this is strictly a, a uh, push toward westernization. The, the, the West has always been present in Hindi film song. Um, um, instead, we need to think about the, the, the uh, way in which everything is always already mediated and how the, um, the focus is, still continues to be present within uh, contemporary song as well. And have you looked at all at, um, I guess, uh, North American or Hollywood films and mm -hmm. how that music is mediated and how that's presented in films in that industry. Mm -hmm. I, ha I I'm aware of it and I and I follow it um, to to a very large degree because the um, a lot of the, the media theory involved in in thinking about mediation is coming directly out of Hollywood and and the the, the theories around music video, for example. Um, and so it's not my area of study, but I'm I'm aware of how things are going. 
I have to say, though, one of the things that really in, intrigues me is the musical turn in a lot of American television and um, in American film. So you have shows like Glee, for example. You have shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You have films like La La Land um, or Chicago or other or other sorts of films that they have that are very definitely musicals in their orientation. And part of me wonders um, whether uh, first we're, we're in in the way that things work cyclically, whether we're in, we're in a musical musical part of the cycle, but second, whether uh, there's a way in which the musical itself as a genre of television or as a genre of film um, is something that has much broader appeal than um, maybe American producers thought in, in earlier periods. So um, the, it's, it's fascinating to me to see how um, uh, to see how the musical, the musical, and the way that it gets mediated in, say, cartoons, the way it gets mediated in films and other places, um, has actually had a pretty a significant um, consistency even in American pop, in American popular life. Although um, it's only more recently that the musical has been being taken seriously, perhaps this is an, an, an adult genre rather than, say, by way of Disney films or other sorts of things like that. In addition to the the popularity of um, or the the say the mass culture popularity of uh, of musical soundtracks like like Hamilton or other uh, or other musicals that have, that pop into the mainstream in really interesting kinds of ways, which again suggests that um, this issue of um, mediation within within an American context needs to be needs to be addressed much more carefully um, and um, with much more deliberation. So I guess uh, I probably should ask you this right off the top mm -hmm. uh, for anybody who who's listening and who perhaps doesn't know. Um, much about Bollywood. Can you kind of explain what, um, I guess, a typical Bollywood film might be mm -hmm. or what you might see if you went to look at a Bollywood film? Sure. Well, the first thing that my students tell me um, about Bollywood films is that they're long. Um, they tend to be about two and a half hours, two and a half hours long, or, and sometimes as long as three. Occasionally there's a film that's over three hours. And a large, a large part of the reason why they're so long is because there's probably a half an hour to 45 minutes worth of songs in, embedded in, in, in virtually every film. It's only very recently that you, that you begin to see films, um, popular films or commercial films that don't have a bunch of songs in them. And as a result of that, uh, the, the, the lengths of films have come down significantly. So if we're thinking about what a, what a, a, a typical Bollywood uh, film is like, the first hour or hour and a half of the film is about establishing the characters um, and, and the relationships between the characters. Um, the second half, and, and a lot of the romantic songs tend to come in the first half of the film, a lot of things that allow the characters to sort of build a rapport with each other, and for the audiences to build a rapport with the characters happen in the first half of the film. They set up the, they set up whatever the conflict is going to be in the, in, in the film, and then the second half of the film is essentially resolving whatever the conflict is. There tend to be a, a bit fewer songs, um, the action sequences and so forth tend to happen much more in the second half of the film than they do in the first half, as they come to a point where they, where they uh, work through whatever the whatever the conflict is that needs to be worked through, and, um, and in a lot of cases, films, uh, romantic films, are about. Um, Characters who, for whatever reason, can't actually have a love affair or can't be married, um, which is which is interesting um, in light of the fact that m most of India practices arranged marriage. So there's a, there's a degree to which the, the idea of what they call the love match or the love marriage is, is very much a significant topic of Hindi films. Um, in addition to that, you'll you'll tend to expect to see a lot of. Um, 
variation between the genres within the, within the same film. That is to say, even within a lot of romantic films, you would still you might still expect to see a fight scene at the end. Um, in a lot of action films, there will be a romance narrative or or other kinds of narratives or, or or a humor narrative that's running along with it. So in the 1970s, for example, they referred to a lot of films as masala films, where a masala is a, a kind of spice mixture that you use in food. The idea being that that, that any a good film is going to be able to give you a whole bunch of different flavors all at the same time. Um, a little bit of action, a little bit of drama, a little bit of romance, a little bit of comedy, um, and in essence, give you the, the give you the full package in two and a half to three hours. You, you're definitely getting your money's worth as far as that's concerned. But the nature of the films have changed over time. Um, some of the um, in f films in the 1950s and the 1960s tended to focus much more on the needs of national development. Films of the 1970s and 1980s tended to focus much more on the frustrations with the Indian government and the inability of the Indian government to, to solve problems that it claimed it was able to be able to be solved. So you have the, the rise of, what's, of what film scholars call the angry young man, which is essentially a vigilante who goes, out, goes around and takes care of the social issues that the politicians have created. Um, by the 1990s, you see the rise of what and the rise of what um, film scholars call the family films, which tend to be about the uh, relationship of the family in um, in modernity in India, um, as as India's economy is changing, as India's social um, social values are changing. Um, how do we maintain the values of the joint family? One of the so one of the big changes that comes along with that then is that in the 19 50s and 60s, you would see a lot of relatively poor people on screen. By the 1990s, you only see fabulously wealthy people on screen. Um, what ends up replacing the angry young man from the 1970s and the 1980s then is the gangster film in the 1990s, which and essentially giving up on the possibility that there that there is any way of um, of fixing India's social problems and basically you, you do what you need to do to survive. In the 2000s and the 2010s, then you begin to see m many more films that are biopics of, of particularly famous people. Um, uh, you also begin to see uh, historical, f uh, a different kind of historical film that looks nostalgically back on um, on moments within India's, India's colonial or um, um, colonial history, or even sometimes pre-colonial history. Um, these days, uh, there's a there's a really interesting mix of um, art films that are actually doing fairly well commercially. Um, uh, as well as um, as well as films that, that follow the same kinds of narratives of, of, of action, drama, comedy, romance, and so forth. But again, the, the trajectory has been for films to decrease in time a little bit, for songs to become a little bit less important to the to the overall narrative. Um, but um, nevertheless, finding a, a mode of uh, creating. Um, uh, creating an appeal for wide varieties of audiences. The ideal being then that if you have a film like, say, Dungle, which was India's top grossing film last in last year, being 2016, 2017, um, a film about um, a man um, who is raising his two daughter daughters to be wrestlers, uh, did extraordinarily well um, in the American market, but also in the Chinese market as well. And so the actor Amir Khan from that from that film is one of China's China's top stars right now. So in, in essence, um, there was a lot of talk in 1990s and early 2000s Bollywood that somehow Bollywood would be able to sort of break into international markets, and it's only fairly recently that that's been able to that's been the case um, in in any widespread kind of way. And do you like do you have an idea of where Bollywood is heading in the next say 10 years or so, or do you have a no, I, I wish I did. Um, I would be investing in that if I did. Um, I've been seeing the rise of certain certain other genres of films that um, like sports sports oriented films and things along that line. 
Um, it's hard to say um, in any given year what the what the next trend is going to be. Um, this is this is the question everyone always seems to be asking. Um, that said, I wouldn't be surprised to see a return to a, per a particular rendition of the family film um, that's actually maybe a little bit more critical of the family. So, for example, there was a film that was released in 2015 or 16, I forget which year, called Dil Darachnedo, um, which is very specific, or Let My Heart Beat, um, which is very specifically about cr criticizing the family film and, and the, the constitution of the Indian family in ways that sort of overlook all of the really bad stuff that happens within families. Uh, in this, in this particular film, the, the husband is a womanizer. Um, the wife is basically eating her eating her emotions, or eating her way through um, her frustrations with her husband's behavior. Uh, the daughter is is being forced in forced into a marriage that she doesn't doesn't want to be in. Um, being forced to have children in ways um, that she doesn't want to, where she, whereas she'd rather pursue her career and that sort of thing. So I suspect that we'll, we'll there and we'll be seeing a bit more um, more films that are more openly critical about uh, some of India's perceived cultural traditions. Um, but at the same time, there's going to be, a, I would anticipate seeing a countervailing trend of, of films that are more oriented to explicitly enforcing certain kinds of perceptions of what Indian's culture, India's culture is and cultural heritage and the family and so forth. And what do you think, uh, like, where are your, where's your research going to go next? What do you think are you, are you going to study? Yeah, so I'm, I've begun a project now thinking about um, background scores. So I had been I had written a book on film song and I, I, there's a lot more to be written about film song and I'll probably return to it someday. But I've very, been very interested in the ways that um, background scores are important for setting the the larger narratives about film, uh, and about and about scenes and about con, uh, context and um, and the ways that it very subtly changes the emotional uh, values of, of of any particular situation that's being re um, referenced on screen. Strangely, even within a Hollywood context, there is actually fairly little writing on on background scores. Partially because because uh, people don't pay that close of attention to it, um, but partially because um, it's not meant to be heard. Uh, if, if you're really aware of what's happening within the background score, um, and if you have a heightened awareness of it, then, you, then you've, you've lost some component of the narrative if you're a filmmaker. So I'm going back to look at um, the, the, the values around film scoring in India, um, probably from the 1990s onward. What I hope to do then is to sit in with, um, with film score composers as they're negotiating their contracts, as they're working with film editors and film directors to determine um, what it is, what it is emotionally um, or narratively that, that they, they see film music as doing for them. Um, are there ways in which um, certain kinds of composers simply phone it in when it comes to when it comes to to um, background scores? And, and, and there there are certainly rumors that that happens quite a lot. Um, how valuable are background scores perceived to be by certain um, film directors? Um, these sorts of questions, and then beginning to get into the nuts and bolts of, of what it is that makes it what it is that makes a film score successful in an Indian context. Like film song, the uh, the film scores are very mediated by a, a bunch of different kinds of varieties of music that, that might um, move from anything anything from rock to Indian to Indian classical music. So you could say from rock to raga. Um, I found that generally speaking, um, when when there are issues really deep felt issues around the, the nature of the Indian family, for example, you you see you hear particular kinds of instruments. You hear the sitar a sitar flourish or or moments of Indian classical music. So one of the things that I hope to look at in in this context then is is the extent to which this is a convention that's shared by all film directors and all music directors. And second, 
are they actually, to what extent are they digging really deeply into Indian classical music tradition? Um, there's a sense that, uh, that within the performance of a raga that you're performing certain emotions, that it should be per performed at certain times of day um, in certain kinds of contexts. Are film directors cognizant of this? Are the, are the people who are composing music or otherwise using it in the context of film also cognizant of this? Is there a deeper set of meanings that we need, that we need to know um, when, we, when, we, uh, when we listen to films? In addition to that, then, um, I'm also thinking about the ways that um, advertisers create ad films and the way that they use music. So I've written about this a little bit before in, in, in an early 2000s um, ad campaign around, um, around life insurance and the way that they used different eras of, they alluded to different eras of Indian film song as a way of establishing um, uh, both the, 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 the moment, that particular kind of moment, but also as a way of establishing um, why you should trust this company, because it was here in the 50s, it was here in the 60s, here in the 70s. Uh, ironically, it's, it's a complete fabrication. The company had just been there for a few years, but nevertheless, they're using this as, as a way of establishing trust with a particular kind of audience. Um, yesterday, one of the one of the analyses that I did in in the talk on them on campus was um, uh, a very controversial ad from 2012 called 18 Again um, that used um, a flamenco music and Latin dance styles as a way of, of um, as a way of portraying um, sexuality um, and um, exploring the extent to which the this sort of sexuality um, and and its connection to music continues into um, into Indian popular culture more generally or the extent to which that is already playing off of narratives that are already there. Um, there isn't quite the same. Um, there isn't quite the same history of sexuality associated with Latin music or tango in India as there is within the United States or Canada. And so, um, how how can we think about the meanings that this particular uh, advertisement is trying to convey, even as, as it's selling a particular kind of, um, so let's say, controversial cream? <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming in, mm -hmm. and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here. Okay, thank you. It's lovely. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Okay. Tara Barrett, you've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening.